This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Today we are checking in with Toronto Mayor John Tory, as we do periodically. This morning, as you heard in Bob's news, he just announced that wearing masks on the TTC will be mandatory, but no consequence for failing to wear one. There are lots of other developments since we last talked, so let's get right to it. And since the mayor is a veteran radio hand, I'm sure he'd be happy to take some calls, and I hope we will have a chance to do that. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Mayor Tory, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Libby, my pleasure. Okay, so what's the point of saying that wearing masks is mandatory if there's no consequence for not wearing a mask? Well, I mean, the point is that we want to say to people, I guess, in the strongest possible terms, that this is in the interest of protecting the health of other people. And as we are less able uh, to uh, guarantee physical distancing because people get back onto the TTC, that it is in the best interest of public health for you to wear one. You know, the, 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 this is a practice being engaged by every major city in North America. None of them uh, have chosen to enforce. And I think there was one place where they tried to do it and just found it was impossible. So for, I'll give you an example uh, on the flip side. We said today there would be exemptions for children two and under and for people who had certain kinds of lung conditions where it would make it difficult for them to wear a mask. Well, imagine, you know, us going up to somebody who has a lung condition, is not wearing a mask and starting to quibble with them about whether they really have a lung condition, how do they prove that? Or imagine going up to a child that was two years old and looked bigger than two. So this was just going to lead us down a road which wasn't going to really be productive. What we want is for people to wear the face coverings. And we believe that when they have the case put to them, as we've been doing for quite some time, that as the transit gets more crowded again, which we hope it will become more more well used, that it is in the interest of your neighbor's health, uh, everybody's health, uh, and the continued running of the public transit that you should wear a face covering. And I was on the transit this morning. I can tell you a majority of people are already wearing face coverings, and I think we'll get that number right up close to 100% because I think people want to help out. In Côte-Saint-Luc, which is a suburb in Montreal, they've made wearing masks mandatory in businesses and in government buildings, as well as on, uh, you know, sub- the transit that, that uh, they're responsible for. And the onus is on business and, and there are fines. And one of the main reasons they're doing that is that they have a very large seniors population. Uh, I, I mentioned it to Mayor Brown in Brampton, which is a hotspot for coronavirus. Is that what do you think of that? Well, in our case, uh, all these steps we've taken, whether it's with regard to people being asked to confine themselves to home for the last couple of months, as they well know, seniors being advised to stay in, uh, you know, now the mandatory wearing of masks on the TTC. This has all been based on advice we've received from our medical officer of health. 
So if she was to come to me at any point in time and say, in my view, in order to contain this properly and bring about the kind of recovery we want to see in Toronto, that we should be uh, trying to impose an order with respect to the wearing of masks on a broader basis, uh, I would support that because I have relied without exception on her advice all the way through. I will tell you that in the case of our medical officers of health in Ontario, they don't generally have the power to order something as broad as that. So that would have to come probably from the provincial government. But I will just say to you, if that was her professional advice, I would advocate for it because I trust her to exercise not political judgment, but health judgment in terms of what's going to best stop. I noticed that the private sector in Toronto, for example, at grocery stores and other kinds of stores have in many cases required the wearing of masks inside their stores anyway. So, you know, for the moment, we're not looking at that. And, you know, we'll see what transpires in terms of hopefully everything getting better as soon as possible. Yeah, and with with those stores, some of them won't let you in if you're not wearing a mask. And some say, hey, if somebody doesn't want to cooperate, there's nothing I can do. So I guess yeah, that's and, what you know, you I, I tend to think people uh, who are store owners, and I know there's been a tiny bit of legal discussion about this, but not much really. I tend to think store owners who want to exclude people and people who choose not to wear a mask, everybody should go about exercising their rights. The store owner not to do business with those people and the person in question not to wear a mask. Uh, in terms of getting people back on the TTC and, and feeling comfortable, um, so uh, you want people back on the TTC. Uh, you've, uh, you're adding bike lanes to give people other options, and there's talk about priority bus couriers. So my, my question is, I'm noticing every day more and more traffic. Uh, are you taking uh, or do you – what is your best guess about how much more – uh, there will be uh, people will be going back to cars and going back to cars, you know, with a single occupant. And what kind of allowance is being made for that? Well, um, you know, that some of that I'm sure will happen. But what we're trying to, you know, you have to remember in a city the size of Toronto with 3 million people, there are many, many people who don't have a car. So this notion of going back to a car doesn't, uh, you know, isn't a part of their reality. There are many other people who have a car, but who, who couldn't even dream of driving the car downtown, spending the money on gas, and then paying, you know, $35 a day to park it, uh, notwithstanding their concerns about health. So that's why we've made other options available for transportation, including bike lanes on the spine of the transit system. So you'll notice that the places where, <coughs> excuse me, that was an appropriately, uh, properly uh, executed I, I have sneeze. no doubt. Uh, that's why I had to turn right away from the phone. But, um, you know, you'll notice the bike lanes that we are putting in place are on the spine of the transit system so that people who, uh, you know, use that kind of route to get to work will have an option to bike or to walk. Um, but, you know, I guess what we're going to have to see is, um, and it's one of the reasons as well, Libby, why what we've done is we have um, we have uh, strongly encouraged people uh, to, um, um, you know, postpone the return to work, uh, companies, large employers, and they're going along with us, uh, you know, I think quite uh, uh, cooperatively, uh, so that we can sort of have all this happen on a gradual basis and provide other options for people so that we won't end up with uh, a sort of a gridlock situation. So we'll, we have to take these things, all of them, one day at a time, as we have to take the virus one day at a time. Right. But but um, surely you understand that there will be people returning to cars and, and that's going to impact traffic. Are you making any plans for it or are you just going to wait till it happens. Well, I mean, what plans do you make? I mean, what what we'll do is we have the ability to retime signals. We have the ability to, you know, move around our construction schedule. One of the things we've done is to advance construction a lot during the quieter period so that we can get that done so it won't be interfering with roads to the same extent when, uh, you know, when um, 
traffic uh, returns. But, you know, we can't build any new roads between now and the time when traffic might come back. Uh, so, you know, what we have to do is to um, really try and manage this as best we can, which we're doing. We have to uh, understand the fact, as we do, because companies have told us, many, many more people are going to be teleworking on a more permanent basis or for a longer term basis than were the case before. So that will reduce the traffic. So our job is to sort of manage this as it comes. But, you know, I'm not sure what other measures we could take, um, you know, because you can't expand the road space that's available. It's there. And uh, so we're, we're going to encourage people strongly not to, uh, you know, use cars who weren't doing it before. In fact, I would even like to see people who were using cars before use other means of transportation, including public transportation, including bicycles, including walking, um, including ride sharing. And that's what we'll do. Yeah, I, I don't even think that uh, ride sharing, I mean, if, having two people in a car masked who are not from the same family, I, uh, I don't even think that's allowed. Yeah, I, I even meant ride sharing in the context yeah. of uh, Uber, Uber cars, yeah. where both people are wearing a mask and whatnot. I wasn't talking so much about sharing the vehicle. I meant ride sharing in that context. And, you know, if there's an Uber car on the road anyway, and if somebody was thinking of driving their own car and they use an Uber, then that's one car on the road instead of two. So, you know, there is no easy answer to this question of what if everybody decides to drive their car, but I'm fairly optimistic just based on what we know about the demographics of people who have cars, that, um, you know, not everybody can afford to drive their car downtown if they have one. And so I, I don't think the number of people who will suddenly decide they're going to drive downtown is going to be as big as sometimes is projected. Uh, I have a couple of questions about uh, the measures to open patios and expand them. So yep. uh, first of all, it's just if, if you have people on a patio and mm-hmm. there aren't that many seats inside, what happens if it starts to pour rain, do they go into the restaurant? Are they not allowed to? I mean, just a practical question. No, but look, one of the you know shortcomings or whatever you want to call it, uh, one thing that makes it not a you know a full answer to the question of how these poor struggling restaurants can get back on their feet is obviously the case that those patios are are, are of less use to them uh, on uh, the days when it's raining. But you know, fortunately, our weather in the summer is generally quite nice, and I think that most of them are very welcome. I can tell you that you know the ones that have the opportunity to put in a, a new patio or an expanded patio because we've allowed the use of some sidewalk or roadway space uh, as a bit of an innovation, uh, are very happy about that because these people have been denied all of their revenue for the last number of months and the ones in Toronto, as you know, still aren't open. Um, And so I think that, uh, you know, while they would be the first to say that it'll be a bad day when it rains because they'll be back to a situation where they have no revenue, um, they welcome the opportunity to have these patios available to them for the summer months and uh, so that's why we did it. We did it as well so people could have an enjoyable summer, but it was mostly meant to help these very hard-hit restaurants and bars have a better time of it than they might have had if they didn't have patio space. And recognizing as well, of course, that these patios will be required to have their tables two meters apart. So that means even on existing patios, um, you know, which also had rainfall on them in previous years, uh, they would have had fewer tables and therefore less revenue and less ability to get themselves back on their feet. No, I, I get that. What I'm saying, I'm sitting on the patio, uh, enjoying uh, enjoying yeah, whatever, and it starts get to umbrella. rain. I mean, I'm not trying to be hard-hearted yeah. about this, but just what people did on patios before. I mean, I would think in patio cases with patios before, the restaurant inside might well have been full and the patio, and so the people couldn't go rushing inside if it rained. They'd have to go home or they'd have to get an umbrella. And I'm not being insensitive to this. I'm just saying, look, we can't control the weather, and we know that in this country in all seasons, and we're making the extra patio space available as a bonus to people, and there is no rain plan that we have. How could we possibly have one? Okay, um, and 
And and speaking of patios, the mayor of King Street, Al Carbone, uh, was out showing off his small patio, saying there's no way he can pay his bills with a socially distanced patio. Uh, would you advocate for more help for restaurant owners? Uh, well, look, uh, the government, the federal government and provincial governments have, have brought huge uh, programs in to help with wage subsidies and uh, 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 what do they call it, emergency benefits for people, help uh, for the uh, landlords that the landlord has to apply for to allow some of the rent to be forgiven. So there's been there's been no end to the government programs. The city government, in its own case, afforded did what it could afford to do, and we deferred the taxes on that restaurant and every other one, uh, the, the property, for t- uh, two months, and we deferred all the utility bills. And that's as much as we can afford to do. We don't have the same sources of revenue or borrowing ability of the other governments. So I feel very sorry for the restaurant business. And that's why we brought in this expanded patio capacity. And so, um, you know, I I hope that people can take full advantage of all of these different programs, including the patio program. Um, And I feel very badly, but it's not a deliberate act of government uh, that brought this about. It was a pandemic. And what we have to place first with the social distancing of tables at restaurants and patios is health. And that is what we will continue to do, and I'm sorry that that has consequences for people, um, but it's just what we had to do, and we've been trying our hardest to get these things open as soon as possible, and hopefully there will come a day when we won't, we won't have to have physical distancing anymore, but that's not in my control. Um, a lot of people are getting, I don't know what you would call it, pandemic fatigue, and they're kind of loosening up, and it seems that as we are opening up and restrictions are being loosened, there are a lot of contradictions. A lot of things really don't make sense. I mean, you can get a massage, but you can't get a haircut. Uh, you can't uh, have a funeral or a wedding, but going to a huge demonstration, well, that's just fine. Uh, what, what's your view of that? Well, I think in the end, there's no question that there needs to be some sort of fine-tuning on some of these orders. And of course, most of the orders that have been lifted or not lifted and some of the inconsistencies that have arisen are entirely provincial decisions, uh, you know, about haircuts versus... Yeah. Uh, I think they said you could get your... What is it? You can get a haircut in some places but not get your eyebrows tweezered or something like that in the parts where it's going to open up. And so, look, uh, I, I will say that every order that's been issued during this pandemic has been tweaked to some extent after the fact when some of these inconsistencies are brought to the attention of people making the decisions. Most of those decisions aren't decisions I make as mayor. They're provincial decisions, and I think they've been trying their best to do what the health people tell us to do. And I will say, Libby, people should understand this. Politicians, I think almost without exception, Doug Ford, Justin Trudeau, John Tory, have made decisions based on what we're told by the health experts. And that is what I think people would want, rather than politicians deciding what's best in a very serious matter that has taken thousands of lives across Ontario, 956 so far in Toronto, and I hope no more. And so, you know, I I was given a projection that showed back in March, uh, an honest, straightforward presentation by the same health experts that said 4,000 people at a minimum could die in the city of Toronto. And I will tell you right now, I was scared by that, but I asked the first question right away and I said, well, what do we have to do to stop that? And I was told a whole series of measures that have, yes, meant people couldn't get a haircut, they couldn't go out, they couldn't uh, see their families, they couldn't do a lot of things. But as a result, I think we've minimized that loss of life and minimized, hopefully, the number of people who have this virus. And so... 
Um, you know, when there are inconsistencies and things like this that arise, I think we try to fix them. But we're also doing what we've been advised to do to stop people from losing their lives and from getting this virus and from a second wave happening. And that is what I will continue to do. Take the advice of our medical officer of health, who's a consummate professional, and she's given me good advice. It's been balanced um, and it's been thoughtful, and I'm sure it will continue to be so. Um, yeah, I just have a couple very uh, quick questions. Um, I, again, to some people feel like they've been scolded. What would you say to them? Uh, well, I think the only kind of people that have been scolded, if that's happened, and I guess I've done a bit of that scolding, have been people who just deliberately and flagrantly didn't follow the advice and rules that have been put in place. So when we passed a bylaw, you know, saying that people should keep their distance from each other in parks and people just deliberately did not do that and sat very close to each other and, and, and you know, were having parties in the parks, there's some scolding that's required there because we're not talking here about something that would affect uh, how the park looked uh, or any of that kind of thing. We were talking about something that could affect the loss of life. We were just talking about 956 people in the city of Toronto have died from this virus. Thousands have been infected with it and put at risk, including a lot of elderly people. And so if some scolding is needed when people flagrantly disregard uh, orders, bylaws, and other things that have been put in place to protect their health, then I don't know, what are you supposed to do? Um, so, you know, I think we've also tried to encourage people. We've tried to educate people. We've tried to persuade people. We've tried to, you know, when I walked up to some of those groups of young people that I saw sitting in parks too close together, my first comment was, to them wasn't to start to lecture, but I'd say, so... I guess you all live together, eh? And that was my way of saying clearly they didn't. There were like 12 people sitting there all together shoulder to shoulder. And of course, if they had lived together, they would have been allowed to sit like that. And that was my way of introducing the subject. I think we've tried to do it that way without scolding, but sometimes scolding is required. You know, I mean, people have to take a degree of personal responsibility for this. Government has done a lot of things to make, especially the lives of our vulnerable populations, like homeless people and frail elderly people, as good as it can be. But there's a, there's a lot of personal responsibility that has to be accompanying that. And most people have exercised that personal responsibility. But those choose not to um, maybe deserve a scolding once in a while, just like kids do. Okay, well, uh, your uh, assistant is going to scold me if I don't let you go. No, so, I mean, I'm happy. You said you wanted to give me some phone calls. It's 1220. I can stay here, but I, I'm also happy to leave if you want me to leave, but I'm, uh, I'm happy I, to stay. I do want to get to uh, one more uh, thing, okay. and that is the issue of renaming the streets. You've said that uh, a committee should be struck uh, to look at renaming Dundas Street. Uh, there's a big Facebook petition. It's because of uh, that Henry Dundas apparently... Uh, blocked the abolition of slavery. Uh, just what is involved with something like that, with renaming a street? Well, we have a process already that requires public consultation because streets have been renamed for a variety of reasons over time, including reasons to give tribute to somebody, you know, yeah. like where, where it's, uh, you know, Flower Street and you want to rename it after a person. And we have a process that's in place to consult the public and so forth. So what I've asked our city managers to do, because I, look, I didn't even know there was a Mr. Dundas. Yeah, I didn't know where neither. the name came from. I didn't know, how, I don't know where half these street names came from. They're historic. And so we should obviously take up this issue that's been raised about who Mr. Dundas was, apparently, and, and what he stood for. Um, and so I've asked the city manager in Toronto's case to uh, put together a group, and I've asked them not for a never-never report. I want to have an initial report from them in 30 days about how we should go about doing this, because I sure think the way not to go about doing it is just to have petitions taken up. You know, like that, that's, I mean, you have to listen to petitions, and I pay attention to them, but you can't have them be the decision-making um, 
process. You have to make sure you, you know, that you are careful and thoughtful about it. And uh, we certainly don't want to have street names uh, named after people who are hurtful to our ancestors and things like that, and who who advocated views that today we would find, you know, reprehensible. So we got to check into that. I don't know enough about the man's history, frankly, to have any judgment about it at this point. But I, I know what I read, and I just read it for the first time in the last couple of days. And that's why we're taking some action to make sure that whether it's the statues that are around the place, whether it's uh, public spaces, or whether it's streets, we have a process to be followed. So everybody will know what that process is, and it will produce whatever results it produces, but it'll be done on a kind of a, an objective, considered basis as opposed to uh, anything else. We, we're going to get to that in our next segment, but just uh, in terms of money or the practicalities, that's what I'm curious about. Should we go ahead with renaming a huge street like Dundas? Well, I, I will just say this. I don't want to prejudge what Mr. Murray, our city manager, comes back with in terms of advice. That's precisely the advice I've asked for, which is I want to have advice on a process and also what considerations should be taken into account. I will say to you in other places, including some instances, and I can't remember, I've got to find out so I can mention it specifically, in at least one prior instance in Toronto, I think it might have been over at Ryerson, and Mr. Ryerson, there was a Mr. Ryerson, um, he had a a, a bit of a checkered history when it came to uh, the um, residential schools, and so what they've chosen to do there is um, put up some sort of a plaque that explains some of the things he did that would be, you know, to say the least, fall way short of today's standards and were, you know, objectionable and unacceptable. And so, you know, one of the things you have to take into account is that sort of thing versus changing. I think on Dundas, somebody told me yesterday there are 10,000 addresses. So, you know, if you change the name of the street, which may well happen, uh, yeah, you know, then all 10,000 addresses have to change and it goes through a lot of expense for those people and, you know, so forth and so on. So I just want somebody to take a proper, thoughtful, objective, considered look at this. And they're going to have on their committee our anti-black racism office and our indigenous affairs office. So those views will be forcefully and fully represented. And we'll then see what they come forward with, and uh, we'll have a process that we can follow that's hopefully, you know, uh, responsive to the issues that are out there that are very real in our city, and also, um, you know, sensible from the standpoint of having to go about implementing these things. Okay, Mayor John Tory, thank you so much. Thanks, Libby. Okay, bye bye. Bye. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio, heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.